And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. It's a passage that is probably familiar to you. I doubt anyone in here except maybe the youngest would be able to say, I've never heard that before because we have right? Well, Joanne Shetler, she was a Wycliffe Bible translator in the Philippines. She noticed that the tribe, there was a, a new tribe that she was working with, they weren't very consistent in prayer. And so she prayed, Lord, do whatever it takes to teach these people to pray. Well, about a month later, she was in a helicopter crash there in the Philippines and she almost died. Well, guess what happened? The people prayed like they'd never prayed before. Please don't let her die because our book isn't finished. They were referring to the Bible that she was working on translating for them. Well, from then on, the people prayed. (laughs) Now, having heard that story, uh, are you willing to join this unnamed disciple and say, yes, Lord, teach me, teach us to pray? It could be dangerous. Uh, Prayer is the acknowledgement that our need, it's not partial, it's total. So when we ask the the Lord to teach us to pray, he may put us in situations where we are so well overwhelmed that we have no other choice, no other option but to pray. And a lot of times that's a good place to be. You don't feel so in the moment, but that's where God wants us. So if you dare, you can, with fear and trembling, say, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is a passage that challenges us in so many different ways uh, to see how you modeled a prayer for the disciples and for us even today. So uh, we pray that we would take this to heart, that we would, you would give us understanding. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do that for us so that we can see the truth, that we can uh, embrace it, that we can obey it. So Father, help us to do that. Help us to understand and follow uh, you in prayer today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was after this disciple had watched Jesus pray that he, it kind of prompted him to ask Jesus, well, can you teach us how to pray? Now, if we know from Scripture that the Lord Jesus prayed often, what does that say about our need for prayer? If the very Son of God chose to spend a, a copious amount of time with God in prayer, What does that say about mere mortals like you and I? We need prayer as well. Now, Jesus modeled for us a life of just really total dependence on the Father. Uh, His prayer life and his instruction on prayer, they are foundational as we struggle to grow in our own prayer life. Now, the fact that prayer can be taught, what does that tell you? It can be learned. You don't teach something that can't be learned. If prayer can be taught, then it can be learned. That is a good thing. That should give us hope. Now, if you struggle to pray as you ought, well, the the Lord's instruction here should be of great help, great encouragement for you today. Now, in our our study last week, we saw that Jesus, uh, or that sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his word is the one thing necessary in life. That's what he told Martha. Mary, Martha, Martha, you worry about so many things. Mary has chosen the good part and it won't be taken away from her. That's the one necessary thing. But sitting at Jesus' feet implies not only listening to his word, but also to communing uh, with him in prayer. 
And so Luke 11, uh, 1 through 13 is a teaching on prayer. Today we're looking at what's typically called uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus' model prayer. It really shouldn't be called the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus never had to pray for any forgiveness, did he? Right, so it's a model for us. Now, the Lord gave this same model prayer in a bit fuller form in the Sermon on the Mount. Which, which have you memorized? Did the one today seem too short? It did, didn't it? It just seemed too short because we're used to doing Matthews. The reason we're used to doing Matthews is because it is longer. It is fuller. Now, if this is a model prayer, then you can be sure that it was on just on, on more than one occasion that Jesus used this as a model prayer. And what that means is the words wouldn't necessarily be the same, which they aren't. They're close. But the concepts are there. All right, And that, that's what he's trying to do here. Uh, we're not to use this as a verbatim prayer. Many churches do. And there's nothing wrong with saying this prayer corporately. Don't hear me wrong about that. But that wasn't the purpose Jesus gave us this prayer. All right, it's, We're supposed to follow the basic outline and content as a pattern for our own prayer. And that's the main reason that Jesus gave us this prayer. Now, we can boil Jesus' instruction down to this. When we pray, we should focus on really two things, the Father's purpose and the family's needs. So after that initial dress, address, our Father, the prayer falls into those two categories. First, the Father's purpose, that His name be set apart, that it be hallowed, and that His kingdom come. And then the family's needs for provision, for pardon, and for protection from sin. Now, in the second section, all of the pronouns are in the plural. It's we and us. Uh, this shows that our prayers have to go beyond our personal needs to the needs of others. Now, these two sections coincide with the summary of the law given by Jesus, which is what? Love God, love others. Love God, love your neighbors, right? And that's also what we see reflected in the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with loving God. The last six have to do with loving man. So by praying for God's glory and kingdom, I learn to love him first and foremost. And by praying for others' needs, I learn to love them as much as I love myself. So first of all, when we pray, we should focus on the Father's purpose. So let's consider the address, Father. In order to pray rightly, we must be able sincerely to address God as Father. There's a general sense in which God is the Father of all mankind since they are His offspring as Creator. Does that make sense? We're all children in that sense. However, since the human race fell into sin, we enter life alienated from God. In fact, Jesus told some of the Jews that they were of their father, who? The devil. Woo. Okay. Not Yahweh. Satan was their father. It's only when a person is born again spiritually, by God's will, by God's power, that he becomes a child of God in the true sense and can then address the almighty creator as father. So the first requirement is if you want to pray rightly, you have to repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then and only then can you have access through Christ in the Holy Spirit to the Father. 
Well, Father also implies the intimacy of uh, love and, and really personal relationship. In the Old Testament, God was known as the father of his people, uh, the father of Israel. But did you know that in all of the Old Testament, God is referred to, referred to as father fewer than seven times, uh, except indirectly or rather remotely. Yet in the Gospels, Jesus calls God Father 70 times. In fact, Jesus uses this title, Father, every time he prays except one. Can you think of where he doesn't say Father? It's on the cross. It's one of his last seven sayings. He quotes Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the term Father, it implies the intimacy and love of a personal relationship with the sovereign creator of the universe. Now, it should, it should encourage us to draw near and expect to find mercy and compassion. John Calvin comments, For God is not only a father, but by far the best and kindest of all fathers. You see, he always welcomes his children into his presence. How many of you guys get other area code phone calls and it's people wanting to, and, and, and nowadays it's not even that. I get them from Tallahassee. I get them from Crawfordville. I even had somebody spoof my own number. I was calling myself. Really? I don't think I'll answer myself on this one. But how many of you get those calls for, oh yeah, I want, I want, to, I want to sell you a medical bracelet. I want to sell you a, a home warranty or car warranty or, or whatever it might be. I have learned that if it's a different area code that I don't know, I let it go to voicemail. If it's important, they'll leave, a, they'll leave a voicemail and I'll get back with them. It hadn't happened yet. Okay. Well, when I see the names Austin, Caleb, or Jonathan, do you think I debate about whether answering it? You know who that is? That's my sons. No. They're, they're my sons. I love them. They have immediate access to me as long as I don't have my phone on airplane load like it is now. And that happens, I will tell you. I'm perfectly human in that. I'll have it on airplane mode and I won't find out till tomorrow, till tomorrow that I've had it on airplane. That's why none of you could get in touch with me because I never turned it back on. But when I see my sons, yes, they get immediate attention. If you know God as your father, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you'll always have access to him. You'll know that he'll hear your need and respond as a loving and kind father. Well, father also implies the respect and authority um, of a submissive relationship. The Jews of Jesus' day tended to view God so awesome, so holy, that they dare not be intimate with him. When Jesus prayed Father, as he did, that would make the average Jew kind of take a step back. It's like, hmm, what does Father translate into our language today? It's Abba in the Aramaic. It's, it's very colloquial. It means Daddy. So for Jesus to call Yahweh Daddy, that, that, was, that, was, uh, that was something. Okay, uh, If someone got a, a glimpse of God, they assumed that they would die. 
They dared not utter the name of God because it was so holy. They don't even write the name of God. Do you know to this day that a, an Orthodox Jew, when they're writing a letter and they write God, in some way they're not going to put G-O-D. A lot of them will put G under case D. We know what it's saying, but they are not going to even spell God because that's how holy, how transcendent their view of him, their view of him is. They always kept their proper distance in the temple because if they touched a holy thing, what would happen? They would die on the spot. You remember what happened to Uzzah? Right? The cart just joggled. He reached up and touched the Ark of the Covenant. God struck him dead. That was the fear that was in them of the holiness of God. They needed to learn that they could approach God as a kind and loving father. In our day, we don't suffer from that, do we? Matter of fact, the reverse is more often true. Most American Christians think of God as their good buddy in the sky. Uh, we don't worry about his consuming holiness. We don't worry about his blinding splendor. We don't fear his chastening hand. We're more like the children who call their permissive fathers by their first names. We're, we're far too casual about the Holy One. But the term father, it shouldn't not only uh, encourage us to draw near to a kind and loving father, it should also cause us to respect his authority and to submit to him in reverential fear. Hebrews 12, 9, the writer says, uh, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? So while we can draw near to the father as his beloved children, we must always do so with reverence, with respect, submitting to his sovereign authority. Well, secondly here, let's look at the focus, the Father's purpose. Our first focus in prayer should not be for our needs, but rather for the Father's glory and his purpose. In fact, the glory of God is the main purpose and end of prayer. Prayer isn't to get our will done in heaven. The purpose of prayer is to get God's will done here on this earth. So our prayers should begin by focusing on two aspects of God's glory. That his name be hallowed and that his kingdom come. Now the word hallowed, that means to be set apart as sacred or holy. And God's name refers not only to uh, how men address God, but also to the whole person of God. It refers to all of his attributes and actions as revealed in Scripture. Now, our, our prayer should be that the true and living God would be treated as holy and exalted by people everywhere. We should want God to have the honor and glory that he alone deserves as the sovereign of the universe. Now, it's a prayer that all sin and irreverence be judged so that all men will bow in worship before God's holy throne. Now, there's coming a day when that will happen no matter what, right? Ephesians 2, uh, 5 through 11 tells us all of that. But as believers, we want that to be true in our lives and we want to encourage it in other people's lives that need to know the Lord. So this focus on God's glory, that was actually the constant focus of the Lord Jesus. 
There in chapter 17 on the night before his crucifixion, it's in the upper room. We call it part of his high priestly prayer, chapter 17. Here's what Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have glorified you on the earth. I manifested your name to the men you gave me. All of Jesus' life fulfilled this prayer to hallow the Father's name. Now this, heart, this prayer has hardly been fulfilled in the church, let alone in the world. I, I hear Christians take, take God's name in vain. In the world, uh, even more so, God is not set apart as holy, as revered. People often use uh, God's holy name as a swear word. Putting God on the same level as, as human excrement. As, as Paul cites the psalmist, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I want to let you in a little pet peeve of mine, okay? And I hear it every now and then, and nine times out of ten, I say something about it when I hear it, particularly if it's coming from a Christian. It, it's, it's joining two words, holy, huh? No. Yep. She just, she just verbalized it. She didn't say it. Thank you for not saying that loud. It's a colloquial word that we use for human excrement. You know what I'm talking about. And I hear it. Holy. Do you understand what you're pairing together? There is only one thing in the universe that is truly holy. And that is God Almighty. And here you are joining him with something that universally defiles. Universally. My little dog, my son's little dog, when he has to go TT, goes right out in the yard and goes TT. When he has to do number two, where does he go? To the woods. Don't do it, folks. I'm telling you, it raises something in me that wants to explode. When you say holy, those two are not associated in that way. We need to watch our, we need to watch our language. Let me take a breath. Setting God's name apart as sacred or hallowed, it begins in our hearts. We submit every thought to him as the Holy Lord. Everything that we say and do must take, must take account of our holy God. So as we draw near to God in prayer, we have to first make sure that we reverence him as holy. And then we have to pray for his church to set apart God as holy in their hearts. And we've got to pray that his name will be hallowed in all the earth as men from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation bow before him. Well, the second part of God's purpose is that his kingdom come. Now, this is just an, a logical extension of the first part. It points to the future day when Jesus Christ will return in power and glory to set up his kingdom on this earth. Um, for he'll rule the nations with a, a rod of iron. Now, every child of God in some way longs for that day when God will put down every enemy, when righteousness will reign on this earth. But can also be applied to God's ruling in my own heart and in every other human heart 
in the interim before the coming of that day of his outward reign. Now this request acknowledges God's right to reign over my sinful heart. Before I can rightly pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, I must be in submission to the lordship of Jesus. I can't pray about even the most basic matters until I have first yielded my own stubborn self-will to the rightful reign of the Father in my own heart. So when I come to God in prayer, the first order of business is to submit my heart to him in humble adoration and obedience. Then I should pray for God's kingdom that it would come in the heart of my family. Each of them should set the Lord apart as holy and should daily submit their hearts to him. Beyond my family, I should pray for others in the family of God, the church, that they would live out his kingdom and glory in practical ways. Now this especially includes church leaders because if they fall into sin or rebellion, it has a greater impact than for others. Beyond that, I should pray for God to be glorified by his coming in our city, in our state, in our nation, and, the, and including the leaders in those spheres. And finally, I should pray for his kingdom to come around the world through the spread of the gospel, through the holiness of his people, the church, in every land. Now, this kind of kingdom praying, uh, it will affect your whole outfit, uh, outlook on life. It should affect, um, or, or it should, it should uh, just show us that we are actually engaged in spiritual warfare. We should pray that the devil will be overthrown and that the rightful Lord of this universe will be enthroned as king. Now, John Piper points out that in war times, such as World War II, uh, people think and act differently than in peacetime. Some of you lived as adults through World War II. Maybe you're going to be able to relate directly with what he is saying, but it makes sense. The news carries stories about how the troops are doing. I remember that from the Vietnam, Vietnam in the 60s, watching every night. Okay, seeing, seeing, seeing what's happened. Families get together and they talk about their sons and daughters on the front lines. They pray often for them. They pray for their safety. There's an austerity, a simplicity of life because the whole nation is focused on the war effort. Then Piper applies this to prayer. He says, so what is prayer for? For war and wartime. Not for civilian life. The primary reason, this is him continuing, the primary reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is their insistence on trying to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom. A tool made for tanks and trenches won't work when you install it on your yacht or your winter cabin or your second or third or fourth car. End quote. Prayers for wartime, y'all. We don't live like it's wartime, but it is. Spiritually, it is. So when we pray, our first focus should be on the Father's purpose, for his name to be hallowed and for his kingdom to come. Only after this are we permitted to focus on our needs. And that's the second part of the, the model prayer here. When we pray, we should focus on the family's needs. There's a link between the two sections of this prayer. 
Our prayers for our needs, for provision, for pardon, for protection from sin, they ought to be so that we can work toward the accomplishment of the Father's purpose, that he be glorified on the earth. The goal of these personal requests is not our own happiness. Rather, it's to supply what we need to fulfill the Father's purpose. So first, we should pray for the family's need for provision, daily bread. Yeah, that's a figure of speech that refers to our basic daily needs, physical needs. It recalls the manna that God provided each and every day for Israel in the wilderness. He gave them just enough to supply their need on that day, but not enough to stockpile for any longer except on the day before the Sabbath. They were to collect two days' worth. But every other time, it was just one day at a time. This reminds us that we are, we are really... Um, to live simply in our dependence on God, not trusting in our own resources. Now, most of us, we've been blessed with far more than today's necessities. Matter of fact, we may have enough for weeks, months, years, but we dare not forget that it all could be taken away in an instant. We live in a place where there's a hurricane, another hurricane just around the corner, isn't there? Uh, maybe a disease comes on you that you weren't counting on. Maybe some crisis like COVID-19 hits the whole world that nobody was counting on. Do you understand that we get, when we give thanks for our food, it should be with the recognition that we're dependent on God not only for this meal, but even for our very next breath. And we should remember that the reason we ask God for provision is not so that we can be happy, but so that we can seek first his kingdom. Well, secondly, we should also pray for the family's need for pardon. Now, just as bread is our basic need for our bodies, so pardon is the basic need of our souls because we've all sinned. As believers in Christ, we have the assurance that his blood has once for all cleansed us from every sin. And yet, daily, we need to apply that blood to our hearts so that we can come before God with a clear conscience. It's not a matter of my eternal standing before God. That is secure. That's not going to change. It's a matter of my present relationship with him. Now, I am my daddy's son because I was born into his family. Now, my father has died, but when he was alive, I'd always be his son. Even if I wronged him, I'm still his son. That doesn't change. But he and I could uh, enjoy a close relationship only if when I wronged him, <laughs> I confessed it to him and asked for his forgiveness. It doesn't affect the, the long-term relationship, but it does, it, affect, it does affect it in the here and now. So daily, we need to come before God and ask for his forgiveness. In, in, in the same way, we will drift in our relationship with the Heavenly Father if we're not sensitive to our sin. Now, Jesus ties in our forgiveness before God with our forgiving those who have wronged us. God's forgiveness is granted only on the basis of his grace. It's not by works. The idea here is that if, if we who are sinful can forgive others, then surely God, who is perfect, will forgive us if we come to him. But there's also the notion that the true mark of the one who has been forgiven by God is that he will forgive others. I can't honestly pray, Father, forgive my sins if I refuse to forgive someone who has sinned against me. 
Now, this means that your relationship with God, it's kind of inextricably, that's a hard word to say, inextricably linked with your relationships with your fellow man, especially with those in your family and in the church. You can't just walk away from a strained relationship as if it doesn't matter. It does matter. If you're bitter, you can't pray rightly until you choose to forgive. And the rest of us, we've got to pray for those in the church who are hurt and, and bitter, that they would forgive those who have wronged them. Well, the third thing that we pray for is the family's need for protection from sin. The final petition is, lead us not into temptation. Now, this is a kind of a difficult to interpret because James 1, 13-14 tells us that God does not tempt anyone to sin. How are we tempted? Through our own lusts. And James 1, 2 instructs us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Trials and temptation, it's the same Greek word, just translated as two different uh, English words. It's the same word. So, think about this. Why would Jesus tell us to pray that God would not do what he cannot do? And if the sense is trials, why should we pray that God would spare us from something that James says is ultimately for our good? Well, Jesus seems to be using the word in the sense of avoidance of temptation to sin. Lead us not into temptation. It's probably a figure of speech that it expresses something by negating the contrary. When I say not a few, what do I mean? Many. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm contrary to the negative. Right? Not a few means many. Jesus means that we should cultivate the attitude of fleeing from every situation where we might fall into sin. The idea is that far from leading us into temptation, which he cannot do, James tells us, that God would lead us into, how about the paths of righteousness, as David prayed as a shepherd, right? So that we would be kept from sin. So the prayer, lead us not into temptation, that's an acknowledgement of the weakness and sinfulness of our hearts. It's an admission that if, it, if God were to withdraw his gracious hand from us, we would fall into sin immediately. Right? You ever heard that? But there for the grace of God go I? That's exactly what it's talking about. It's an attitude that flees temptation rather than seeing how close we can come to it without succumbing. You ever done that? It doesn't work, does it? No, you flee, you run the other direction. It's been paraphrased as, Lord, if the occasion of sinning presents itself, grant that the desire may not be found in me. And if the desire rises, may it be that the opportunity does not present itself. So if we pray as Jesus instructs, we're going to focus on the Father's purpose first, that his name be hallowed and that his kingdom come in all of the earth. And we're going to focus on all of his family's needs for provision, for pardon, for protection from sin. Not so that the family is going to be all cozy and happy. Does God provide coziness and happiness? Yeah, sometimes. But that's not the purpose of prayer. It's so that we will have what we need in order to carry out the first part of the prayer, God's purpose. Lord, so teach us to pray. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for these challenging words. Lord, we see uh, that uh, prayer is not to be a necessarily selfish thing, that we are to turn to you first and uh, seek your purposes. And then after that, uh, turn to ourselves and others and prayer for their needs, not in a selfish way. Father, you are not a, a one-armed bandit in the sky that we just reach up to when we need something. No, Father, it's so much more than that. Uh, our prayers should be focused around uh, what we need in order to carry out your purposes. And in carrying out your purposes, we will find that, yes, we will be happy. We will be joyous. You will meet all of our other needs. So, God, just train our hearts for that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, the obvious question is, can you call God Father? Not in the universal sense. Yes, he's a creator of the universe, so ergo, you are a child of God. No, as in you have a relationship with God, a, a, a relationship of love and submission to God through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, Christianity gets, a claim, uh, gets uh, slammed as being too exclusive. We live in a world where, uh, especially in America, in the West, where you're supposed to be tolerant, you're supposed to accept everybody. And, but the fact is, if, um, it, it's just pure logic. If A does not equal B, then you know, in, in a logical situation, they can't be equal. They're, they're not the same. So when Christianity says there is only one way, what does that say about a lot of other things that say, no, you can go this way, you can go this way, you can go this way. It stands opposed to that. So Christianity gets plugged as being too intolerant. But I'm telling you, it's Jesus the one that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Have you come to the Father through Jesus? Can you call God Father today? If you can, uh, are, 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 is your prayer, does it look anything like the model prayer? It should Jesus says, when you pray, say, and he's not talking about verbatim. He's saying just follow the content, follow, follow the order here. Pray for the right things first. Pray for the kingdom of God to come. Pray that God's name would be hallowed among yourself, among those around you, in the world. And then secondly, pray for the needs. Not just your needs. They're all plural pronouns. There's us's and we's. All right, so as I'm praying, I'm praying for Brother James and Miss Joanne. I'm praying for others out here. All right, we pray for each other. We pray for others. I hope that's your, let's call it style of prayer. Let's hope that's how the, the pattern that you follow. That's why he gave it to us. I want to encourage you this week. Take time cognitively and say, all right, let's pray as Jesus told me to pray and see what happens. How many struggle with prayer? I'm going to close my eyes. Most of us struggle with prayer. This is a great way to do it with some intention, with some purpose. Okay? Try it. Pray to God about his name, about his glory, about his kingdom. And then pray for others for provision for protection from sin. Try it this week. See what God does in your life. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. 
You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com. <laughs>